Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I uh, really I hope that you find the, uh, the talk interesting, and I hope that everybody learns something at least. And by everyone, I'd like to include myself as well. We all are all still learning. So we've got a Q&A session afterwards. I invite you to please keep track of your questions. I hope to get back to them. And if there's any part of the presentation that you'd like to discuss with me, I'd very much welcome that as well afterwards. So before we start with comparing sequential versus incremental and iterative development models, there is some terminology that we first must get out of the way. Let's post this book. And that is models, frameworks, and methodologies. So if you Google, uh, if you try to Google these terms to figure out what it is exactly that they mean, then you'll see that there is quite a few contradictions. In many cases, they'll be used as synonyms, and this is very prevalent in software. Very often in software organizations, you get people who use the terms interchangeably. Some see them as synonyms. Some uh, notice distinctions between them. Uh, if you throw into that mix also, uh, well, methods, practices, procedures, tools, all relating to processes, then really it becomes a very difficult thing to unravel exactly what it is. To be honest, uh, I was a big proponent of Wikipedia uh, always until I started researching these topics on Wikipedia, and now I really understand the criticism against it. It definitely doesn't <laughs> make anything much any clearer. So a model from uh, the software, uh, the SE, uh, SE book is... And this, descri this, uh, this description is from the Department of Defense in 1998. It's very simply a physical, mathematical, or otherwise logic logical representation of a system, entity, phenomenon, or a process. But for the presentation that we'll be having tonight, uh, I'm just going to say that it is an abstract representation of your entire software process. All right? So if we, so what models do is they outline the type of things that are done. They don't tell you specifically exactly how those things are done or what to do within those. So if you compare, for instance, uh, Waterfall, Waterfall defines phases, but it doesn't give you the artifacts that you must use. It doesn't specify the tools that you must use. Uh, the same with Agile. Uh, as with Waterfall, it doesn't give you the, uh, the artifacts. It doesn't give you the methods. They say, for instance, that in Scrum, you can use user stories, but you really don't need to use user stories, and they're actually very clear on the topic, right? So some examples of, uh, of models would be, as you all know, Waterfall, we've mentioned Spiral is another example, the V model, uh, there's quite a few, right? It's those that we'll be looking at tonight. Then compared with that, we've got methodologies. Um, so yeah, there's lots that you can say about methodologies. There's a fascinating... <laughs> There's a very interesting paper from Capers Jones in 2011 where they compared uh, the top methodologies to try to see which one is the best because that's, of course, always the argument. They found that at that stage there was 55 different methodologies in use uh, and a near-infinite amount of hybrids, hybrid methodologies between those. So, in any case... Um, Basically, for my purpose, I'm going to say that it can be thought of as a recipe or the application of a related process, methods, and tools to a class of problems that have something in common. Uh, so it demonstrates a well-thought-out, defined, and repeatable approach. Now, uh, yeah, we'll get a bit more to methodologies. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover them in too much detail or really in a lot of these at all, but common examples would be Scrum, XP, Rational Unified Process, uh, Pair Programming, and so forth. And then lastly, we've got frameworks now. 
uh, all the developers will know what frameworks are in context of uh, software but process frameworks. Um, the description I've got there is a combination of set protocols, rule standards and guidelines that can be incorporated or followed as a whole so as to leverage the benefit of the scaffolding provided by the framework. Now, a good example of that would be elevators. Elevators have a framework, framework for how you should use them. Uh, and if you follow that framework, it says, well, it makes the system more beneficial, accessible, scalable, and less troubled for its users, such as, so for, they say, don't smoke in an elevator. If you don't smoke, then it's going to be better for everyone else. Or uh, don't get in an elevator if the building is on fire. It's a good framework to follow. Right. <laughs> so that brings us to really the topic for discussion tonight, and that is life cycle process models, um, sequential, incremental, and iterative we'll get to. Uh, really, we'll be looking at what are the different models and when to use which uh, and the characteristics <laughs> of them. Um, so software, because by its nature it's intangible and malleable, you get a whole range of different software life cycles that you can follow due to the nature of the uh, of the software of, of the uh, of the product. These are generally grouped into two categories, which is uh, according to the uh, the handbook, you use the terms uh, sequential, incre incremental, and iterative. The SE book uh, refers to them as linear and adaptive, but they're basically the same. The biggest distinction between the two is the way that they manage their requirements. So in linear. Uh, or in sequential, you would start by defining your requirements to the extent possible uh, at the beginning or inception of the project. While with uh, adaptive, it is less strict than that. They allow requirements to be uh, to evolve throughout the project. All right. Uh, in linear, you'll typically find that uh, linear it will be uh, there will be stricter control on requirements. There will be giant controls and control boards and so forth. Again, there can be, but are not necessarily, uh, more flexibility in terms of adaptive. All right. Um, Agile is usually designed around the evolution of the products. Uh, but again, these are these are not cast in stone. Many very often you'll get models that borrows from both uh, concepts. It's unfortunately you can't categorize these very clearly as this is specifically this model. This one is this. Uh, they're not inherently. Uh, completely separate from each other. They developed after each other and used the lessons learned from each. In any case, um, all right, so let's just run through sequential development uh, very briefly what it is that we mean by that. It is seen as the traditional way, it is a systematic approach that we use to specify process as the system moves through a series of representation. It's attention to completeness of documentation, very well known fact of the traditional approach. Uh, it is of a proponent of traceability and verification of each representation after the fact. Its strengths are predictability, stability, repeatability, and assurance. Process improvement uh, would be standardization, measurement, and control. Weaknesses would be unprecedented projects, projects with higher rates of unforeseeable change, predictability, and uh, stability. We're, we're going to go into this in a bit more detail as soon as we get to the examples of the models. Then next up, uh, the other comparison is uh, incremental and iterative development. Um, I'm not going to go to, into this in too much detail, but this is largely from the SEAN book section 3.4. I'm sure you've all got it, so you're more than welcome to go and read it. <laughs> um, there's just one point here uh, which I would like to clarify, and that is uh, 
So the third one, useful when the requirements are unclear or cannot be further clarified or possibilities of inserting new technology. It's a yeah, characteristic, characteristic of when to use incremental iterative, but very, it must be stated that uh, the requirements cannot be further clarified. Very often you will find that requirements really could actually be further clarified, but because they aren't further classified uh, or clarified, people use that as a reason for why they would want to follow a specific approach, such as Agile. All right. Um, lastly, it's not about which one you follow, but uh, which one you follow, but about getting it right. Uh, but yes, again, we'll get to that. All right. Really, the following or this slide, and please excuse the green dot. Uh, this is kind of the main, uh, the most important slide of this whole presentation. If it, most of the lessons are to be learned on this slide, and that is the lifecycle drivers based on you, what is the factors that goes into sel selecting and applying a lifecycle model sp uh, successfully. So nature of requirements, that would be the cognition of the requirements. How well can, can the requirements be understood? Uh, an example would be um, Larry Page and uh, Stephen Brin, uh, the founders of Google. They developed a brilliant search engine, but they had no idea how to market it or how to make money out of it. So that would be a very clear lifecycle driver for them in selecting which way they must develop their, uh, their product. Requirement stability, if, uh, if the requirements are likely to change, then again, it's not worthwhile spending three or six months trying to develop a process around it that's going to work. Well, it will have a very profound effect, obviously. Scope flexibility, if your scope is completely inflexible, if you must deliver everything, then there's no real point in having discussions around incremental nitrates iterate too much because you already know what your scope is going to be. A minimal viable product, we'll get to that, but more budget and time flexibility are fairly uh, straightforward. Technology risk. Uh, take for instance a Mars Science Laboratory when they landed the thing on Mars. No one had ever done anything like that before. It had a uh, high amount of risk uh, inherent to it. That had a big impact on the, uh, on the life cycle that they followed. And then lastly, your solution complexity. Um, yeah. It's a simple project, not very complicated, or not uh, complex, then that'll also have a profound effect. So what we'll be doing is going to, just as an orientation, we're going to be looking at these ones. Uh, waterfall, incremental, iterative and incremental, prototyping, agile, spiral, and then afterwards we'll have a brief conclusion. So that brings us to, oh, just firstly, uh, firstly before we look at waterfall, uh, the benefits and risks of a sequential development model. Uh, I'm sure you may recognize this graph. I think it's from the Encosia handbook as well. If you compare your cumulative, cumulative project cost over time with your influence over the project cost, uh, as you know, your influence decreases as, uh, in a sequential, uh, sequential model, your influence decreases as your time goes on. I think actually the figure is about uh, after you've spent 20% uh, of your time or 20% focus, then you've already committed to 80% of your cost. Um, so that is why systems engineering really focuses on this uh, on this part here, where they can have a very big influence on the project. All right. So your debt of your goal, uh, your baseline goal, would be there, but it's very difficult to see see when you're 20 or 30 percent in whether it's going to be there or whether it might actually be there. Right. Now, as many of you have worked on sequential uh, projects know what's going to happen with management. Management will be slightly involved at the beginning, and then they'll see that things are going smoothly, and they'll be back in the end, and 
see what the hell is going on. Everyone jumps on the thing. But unfortunately, the only influence that they have left at that stage is that little triangle. <laughs> That's how it goes, unfortunately. All right, the waterfall model. So the waterfall is not, of course, the first model. Before that waterfall, we just had code and fix, which was you write code, you fix it, and that's your whole process. It didn't work all that well. Um, it kind of resulted in code with relatively poor structure, which was very difficult to maintain. That was infinitely improved by the stage-wise model. Um, the stage-wise model basically just said that you must have various phases uh, in your software. And a fairly big evolution of that was actually waterfall. Uh, now, in the 80s, no, that's waterfall. In the 80s, waterfall was just simply known as uh, the life cycle because there was no real alternative. It was the life cycle. Uh, famously, Barry Boom in his paper on spiral development started out. The very first line in that paper is Stop the life cycle, I want to get off. <laughs> now, waterfall gained popularity in the 80s because the Department of Defense basically said, you must use Waterfall. This is a good process. Uh, you, we expect that you will use it. It's, they didn't really offer that all that much of a choice. Many reasons for that, but in the case. So, uh, formally described in 1970, um, sort of. The, yeah, there's some question on whether the paper that, was, that it was described in was actually describing Waterfall at all. The guy that wrote it. Uh, was actually a very big proponent of an iterative and incremental, and he was later critical of Waterfall and said that my paper didn't support Waterfall as it's understood now. Uh, he had inc of increments built into his paper, which was the founding of Waterfall. So, in any case, as you know, phases are sequential. Uh, critically, as per as in sequential or linear uh, models, the entire system diagram is described first, then it's designed, then implemented, and so forth until you're done. Uh, the emphasis on planning schedules, target date, and budget implementation of the entire system at one time. Um, there is some, it's not perfectly linear, i.e. you start from the top and you end at the bottom. There is interaction between the different phases. Uh, phases. You can move backwards and forwards. Uh, but yes. Right. So now the question is when to use waterfall. And is this even really a question that should be asked? Uh, Waterfall can be very successfully implemented in simple projects. Uh, it, we'll look at a bit more at the examples. And by, by simple, I mean this is the, uh, the Stacy graph. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of, uh, of simple, complicated, complex, and then chaos. Uh, basically, um, the closer you are to certainty and the closer you are to agreement, that is a simple environment. And that is really where waterfall works very well. Uh, even to some extent where requirement, well, where technology might be slightly less, compl less complicated, uh, here really this would be where, you, where waterfall fits and where it works. Move out of that and unfortunately it's kind of out of the domain of where to use waterfall. Um, one second. All right. Stable in business, business environments where requirements can be well understood, again that point Requirements must be able to be well understood. So um, this is Dilbert in a complex, complicated environment where they've got a massive amount of requirements, and then they simply add one, which is that it must also be easy to use. Yeah, risky sign if you're running a Woodfall project. <laughs> All right. Um, 
another fairly obvious one is if all your functionality is going to be required on the first release, then you may as well plan for, plan for it. Again, in that situation, you would know inherently what your functionality are, what the requirements are. Uh, if it's required in one release, then yeah, it's fairly straightforward that you would use, uh, that you can use Waterfall and also uh, where the technology is well understood. Now, there's six fundamental underlying assumptions uh, required by Waterfall, and this has been known for a very long time, but kind of forgotten by the industry over the past few decades. Uh, Waterfall is very much, well, I'd almost say a swear word in development circles, but in many cases you could argue that they don't understand exactly everything that went into Waterfall and the underlying assumptions on it, given these, uh, yeah, these assumptions. Uh, again, requirements are knowable in advance of implementation. Requirements have no unresolved high-risk uh, implement, uh, implications such as risks and so forth. Uh, given these, then yeah, you can kind of start looking at the advantages of waterfall. Now, again, because it's such a serious word, I'm just going to emphasize, again, only given the previous conditions. Waterfall can uh, be the fastest and the cheapest way to complete the project if those conditions are met. It is, uh, it's simple and easy to understand. It is easy to manage due to the modules rigidity. It's a relatively simple method for partitioning work. Everyone that's done a work breakdown structure or been involved in project management knows that it's, it's really not complicated to plan a project around waterfall if, you, if all the conditions are met, if you know exactly what the extent of the project is going to be. Uh, progress is clearly visible. Anyone from management, if you send a report, you can see, well, this is where we are in the pro project. Uh, this is the progress and so forth. And also, inherently, it encourages correctness by design because it moves uh, fairly rigidly through phases and you've got entry and exit criteria. There is checks and balances within it to make sure that, uh, well, to make sure about correctness of design, then review of intermediate deliverables are easily managed. So that's what I see as advantages of waterfall. Uh, now I get to disadvantages. The first one is, let's say you've got a situation where you understand all your requirements and you assume them to be correct, but now you incorporate the concept of time into that. Will they still be correct six months afterwards? All the requirements are stable and correct, but what's going to happen after a year? We don't know, it's a risk of waterfall, unfortunately. Uh, Requirement change can have a detrimental impact on the project. This is typically in terms of quality. Uh, error recovery is expensive. You know this is this already. If you pick up a bug during uh, when you've rolled it out to, to operations, it's easily a thousand times more expensive to fix than had it been fixed on uh, at the beginning of your project or in the requirements phase. And then limited customer involvement in the design phase. This is a big problem with waterfall. So you've got workshops, you've got meetings. Everyone is on board. Everyone knows what's going to deliver, be delivered. The dev team goes away, six months later they come back, the customer looks at it and says, well, I can't use this, this is completely unusable. Uh, it's a risk, unfortunately, and it's uh, largely because speccing usability is actually a relatively complex thing to do if you try to write a spec which uh, must be developed from. Any case. All right, so just again, very quickly, this uh, slide, you've got your influence, you've got your projected cost, and waterfall is kind of, you shoot the cannon shell and hope that it goes like that. But if you're happy, lucky, it goes like that, or more likely it's going to go like that. All right, so that's waterfall. Uh, the next one is incremental. It's how to do waterfall in little bits. It is still sequential. It is still uh, linear or planned. Uh, 
in that it still does requirement analysis up front. Um, so all the requirements are still gathered and then broken down into logical increments, which, yeah, the architecture is completed for the system as a whole, making provision for an incremental approach. So obviously, you, if you're going to roll out increments, you need to make provision for integration between the components or whatever way it is that you're going to be doing that. A usable set of functions are designed in detail and released in a base version, and the next increment is then designed and implemented. So this is a nice image uh, that kind of highlights the point. Uh, yeah. You can see that the guy has got the entire concept of what the painting is going to look like. He understands exactly what he's working towards. And then he simply rolls it out in increments. Now, an important question to ask is the one about minimum, minimum viable product. Now, you can't assume that as a given. Let's take, for instance, the second image there. It's a nice analogy. Um, that is not necessarily a viable product. With incremental development, that's very often the case. It's not really necessarily possible to have business value added by increments. All right. Um, changing requirements comes after a feedback from the customer about the already developed increments. Yeah. So again, with uh, incremental, you do have some uh, some leeway to to make changes to your requirements later on. It's not you still need to understand your requirements beforehand. But if you're halfway through your increment, then you can make changes to the next one. All right. Uh, applying incremental. It works well when time to market is critical. Uh, it is, well, if you have a subset of functionality which provides benefits, yeah, like I said, the minimal viable product, uh, limited resources and budget, obviously it's going to be cheaper to roll out an increment than to roll out the entire product. And if there is technology risk, then that risk is slightly mitigated by breaking it down into increments. So that brings us to the advantage of an incremental uh, a, a model. And that is that you can generate working software quicker and earlier. Uh, it is more flexible, less costly to change scoping requirements. It is easier to test and debug smaller increments. Obviously, opportunity for customer feedback in each uh, increment, lower delivery costs of initial functionality, and advantages to handling risk. But very importantly, over waterfall. These are advantages over waterfall. This is still a sequential approach where you must understand your requirements going in. Disadvantages, uh, again, compared with waterfall, it is more complicated. Uh, the planning and design of the total cost is going to be higher, and you require a complete definition of the system before increments can be, <coughs> sorry, can be planned effectively. And implementation of requirements tend to get, get postponed. That's an interesting point, by the way. If you compare that to what happens in Agile with, uh, with user stories getting postponed into, sec of, into following releases, uh, typically in incremental, the developers will push out difficult, uh, difficult parts of functionality because there is a next increment. They don't get to it now, they'll just do it in the next one. In Agile, you would say that that clearly means that it's either a lower priority item or the customer isn't involved, which would be a very good risk factor. All right. Um, now we finally get to the more interesting ones, iterative and incremental developments. So by the late 80s, we spoke about the Department of Defense enforcing Waterfall. Uh, they were experiencing very significant failures Projects. This is probably one of the more scary statistics, uh, well, at least in terms of models that I know. So of the total of $37 billion of the sample set, 75% of the projects were scrapped and 2% were used without extensive modification. That is not a very good, yeah, uh, that is not, not a very good result. 
So the, like I said, the uh, the father of the waterfall paper was Royce. By the way, it's a, an, an interesting paper. I definitely suggest that you have a look at it. Um, incremental, incremental, and iterative. So if there's a perception that it's a modern modern model, uh, but if I can just get you a brief uh, story, let's say you've got a engineering team who does very short half-day iterations, uh, that's time-boxed, they conduct technical review of all changes, they practice a test-first development uh, approach, um, they do practice test-first development planning and writing of tests before each micro-increment is applied, and they also do top-down development, they use stubs. That scenario, that engineering team was in 1958, it was the Mercury team, so this is not new by any means. Um, Lessons learned from the Mercury project was then incorporated by IBM's uh, federal uh, systems division of FTS. They're very well known. They write the, they write the Trident missile submarines software, more than a million lines of code in the 60s. I mean, under budget, under time, under cost, very successful project, not the norm of the time. Ironically enough, at, uh, the, t the term software engineering was coined at the conference in 1969. Uh, it was the same con the same conference where they term the, so the ter well they coined the term software crisis because the software was in crisis. It was not a very good time to run projects. So that result was yeah interesting. RID characteristics. Uh, you start with a limited set of requirements, then refine and expand in, in iterations. Uh, the system requirements are not captured prior to design start as in plan driven. Land requirements are captured in the initialization stage. And the, the next two points is really the key. Learning from development leads to design modification. You learn as you develop and you modify your design. You learn from your use and that leads to your requirements. So you basically, it's, you discover the project as you go along. Uh, it's delivered in the next iteration, broken down into increments. So you still do an incremental, incremental approach. You must still properly define your increments. The increment that you work on is specced uh, completely. Um, it's also an interesting point, but in any case. Um, but the iterations are obviously not. Work is done in increments as uh, work done in increments are integrated as they are completed. So again, the image of the Mona Lisa, you can see yeah, how the image evolves. Right. Uh, ID advantages and disadvantages. Oh, uh, yeah, you can you can add a lot more under advantages or disadvantages. I mean, just mentioned a few basically. The first is uh, user feedback in an iterative approach. Uh, user feedback is obviously very much uh, part of the model. Uh, benefits in defect handling, learning, as I mentioned, uh, lower initial delivery cost and less costly architectural changes as you go along. Disadvantages, you can probably mention quite a few more if you really want to, but uh, they would be debatable, as is this one. It's integration may be more problematic. Obviously, if you're following an incremental approach or an iterative approach and you're trying to develop a big system, then your integration is going to be difficult. Well, more difficult at least. All right, um, then I'm going to touch on prototyping, which is, it's a relatively well-known model. I'm just going to go through it very quickly. Basically, there's a few different types of prototyping models. Two most common ones is the throwaway prototype and the evolutionary prototype. Self-explanatory, the uh, throwaway throw prototype, you, divide, uh, you do a high-level outline of the spec, uh, you develop your prototype based on that which you then evaluate, uh, you revisit it, go through iterations until you are happy and satisfied with your prototype. 
and you then use that prototype to specify your system. That specification feeds into your normal SDLC or your development lifecycle, whichever model it is that you follow, that's the waterfall image. And then you chuck away your prototype. An evolutionary prototyping, uh, it's similar, but the difference would be that as your prototypes evolves, you, you evolve, you constantly check whether it's adequate and then that actually becomes your delivered system. I'm sure I don't need to mention the risks of that approach. It's very easy to go back to the code and fix type approach where you fix your problems, get a, yeah, pick something up, just go and fix it very briefly. Difficult to maintain your uh, code quality. So prototyping, yeah, I'm not going to go this in too much detail. Uh, again, regular user evaluation, that is kind of the cornerstone of prototyping. You don't understand your requirements very well. That is why you do prototyping. You go to the customer with a prototyping. By the way, a prototype doesn't necessarily mean a mock-up website or anything like that. It can be a picture drawn on a board or a yeah, any one of the different models. Uh, rapid turnaround of prototype, obviously validated requirements are documented. Now this is yeah, this is description of the throw the throwaway uh, the throwaway one. Alright, then we get to Agile. So Agile didn't start out being Agile. There's many methodologies that kind that uh, became known as Agile kind of after the creation of the Agile uh, manifesto Scrum, for instance, was uh, created in 1986. Um, so again, not very new. The Scrum manifesto, I'm sure you've probably mostly seen it. Was it's uh, it was a counter to the the heavyweight methods of the time, or well, uh, by heavyweight, it's the heavily regulated, regimented, micro micro managed uh, models that was very common in the late 90s. I'm not going to read through that now. So it's difficult to give you a nice flow diagram of Agile because <coughs> Agile is so different depending on which methodology you follow. Um, I'll be showing you Scrum just very briefly for those that hasn't done it before. The image here, remember the waterfall was the cannon with the cannon shell. Here you can see the missile chain just course immediately after being launched. So in Agile, uh, you will capture your user requirements in any one of many different ways, but typically you would write user stories the development team then, based on priority, selects the user stories that's supposed to go into the sprint. Uh, they go into the sprint, are designed, uh, built and tested. This happens in a two to four week period, and then you've got your first release. Uh, I didn't uh, show the sprint zero, which is a whole different topic on its own, but typically you would start out with a planning sprint where you would kind of envision where your system is going to be and decide your architecture based on that. But again, very short cycle. You give that to your customers. Uh, it is supposed to be a viable product and complete and they are supposed to start, well, be able to start using that. That then just moves over into the next release, same process, select more user stories and give them a second release based on that, which you then roll out. Right? Typically after each sprint, the product owner would ask the question, are we now complete? Really, he should know the answer already because he maintains the backlog. But if you're not, then you simply continue until you either run out of money or your product is complete. All right. Uh, so one of the cornerstones of Agile is uh, evolution. It is the power of evolution. There's an interesting story about the power of evolution. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, Unilever were creating washing powder. And they had massive amounts of problems with their washing powder. It was low quality. It was different sizes of granules. This, the nozzles would get stuck. Uh, so they turned to a bunch of mathematicians and flow control experts. They went away for six months, built new models, wrote new, uh, wrote new theories and papers, came back with this revolutionary model of nozzle design, 
pilot, it was worse than the original one. So Unilever was losing lots of money. They turned to an evolutionary biologist. They were probably getting desperate. Uh, <laughs> he took the most successful nozzle that they had. He created 10 different versions of that nozzle and tested all 10. One of them was slightly better than the other. He took that nozzle, created 10 different versions of that. He continued that for 45 generations, and he had 449 failures. And the, re the result was within a few months, he had a perfect nozzle. He didn't understand exactly why it worked, but it did work perfectly. That's the power of evolution. So that's really the, uh, one of the cornerstones of Agile and what they try to bring in. The question would be, let's say you had 45 different teams. You ask all of them to uh, give you 10 nozzles. Would any of them actually have come to the correct nozzle? Probably not. In any case, uh, so Agile principles, these are again, these are on the website. Uh, you're welcome to read them. One, there's some distinctions that you need to make in terms of terminology. So if you're working in an Agile environment, then quality, uh, quality means the customer is happy. That's the definition of quality in an Agile environment. Well, in a plan-driven or sequential environment, we mean mm -hmm. that the system adheres to documentation. Uh, these aren't necessarily criticisms. It's just interesting differences in terminology. Discipline in Agile means that the team is self-disciplined, while in a plan-driven environment it means compliance with established process. And uh, agility, obviously to an Agile team that means dexterity and skill, but they're probably a bit biased. Uh, in a plan-driven environment it would be inconsistent purpose or not sticking to a plan. If you're Agile it means you don't have a, a correct plan. Alright, uh, so there's lots of characteristics on Agile. I tried to summarize them very briefly. They embrace change. It's a very fast cycle. They incorporate uh, many things amongst them, TDD, and simple design, refactoring, uh, which usually looks like that. Uh, Post-iterative reviews, so evolutionary improvement that's inherently part of Agile. And then they've got the document light and document continuous, or document light and doc or document continuously. So they would follow one of the two approaches. There's this misconception that you shouldn't be documenting in Agile, which really very few things can be further from the truth. But in the case, if you uh, do the document continuously, then your documentation should look like that at the bottom. The idea would be that you document everything as it goes along. Uh, the risk is, well, you need slightly more uh, discipline to do that. And also that documents will change because you're documenting before things are uh, set. Any case. All right, so now the question is when to use Agile. Uh, time to market. Market leaders, typically 80% of market leaders uh, are market leaders because they captured the market segment before anyone else was involved. So time to market is critical. Agile is probably going to be the quickest way that you can get there. Uh, cost control is fixed and features are variable. If you've got a set budget, but the customer is willing to negotiate on the uh, on the features, then Agile works very well. Uh, project scope lacks specificity, specificity, and is likely to remain uh, unlikely to remain stable. If you expect changes going into your project, then obviously uh, linear approach will probably be more risky. Uh, the customer is willing and able to offer uh, flexibility on project scope. Uh, so when not to use Agile fixed scope projects, if the scope is fixed, you know what you're going to be delivering going into it. Uh, there's no real reason to do Agile. It's probably going to end up being more expensive and potentially even offering less quality. 
then if again, if you understand exactly what your scope is going in, then you can draw up your requirements. You can specify everything and plan around it. Geographic, geographically distributed teams and customers. Uh, I add an asterisk to that because yes, it is definitely more difficult and you lose lots of the interaction, but it's not necessarily impossible. There's many examples of uh, agile teams that has done that in the past. Uh, I was involved in that myself. Uh, incremental delivery is not possible. If well, I wouldn't, for instance, want to take off in an airliner which is on sprint two of its flight control software. <laughs> <laughs> And stakeholders are not committed to active involvement. If you don't have active involvement, that's a very big part of Agile. They need to be involved in the whole process. Otherwise, it just really doesn't work. Uh, safety and mission critical applications. Uh, take, for instance, a credit card. You can't say, well, we're 80% correct on our credit card transactions. That's really not acceptable. And then lastly, we get to uh, the spiral model. So the tongue-in-cheek, the spiral model is seen as uh, the model that fits a very long process onto an I4 piece of paper. So, why the spiral model? It, it, uh, yeah, there's many benefits of spiral. Uh, it provides a formal risk-driven approach to iterative development. It focuses developers on taking small, uh, low-cost steps with regular analysis of product, project viability. And it provides overall framework within which you can apply other lifecycle models as components. Again, it doesn't specify, uh, it, it isn't a complete model with a methodology in it. You can, for instance, run your second or third uh, phases, which we'll get to now, as either waterfall or agile, whichever one is the most applicable. Spiral doesn't necessitate you to use, uh, to use a specific one. So typically, I'd, a spiral would be uh, very would be very good to use spiral on high risk projects or mission critical projects uh, or fuzzy concepts where you do uh, where you need to incorporate a uh, a type of prototyping along with to uh, expand on the requirements or where basic research is involved. They say that it's very difficult to uh, plan around innovation, but well, probably spiral is one of the closer ones we've got to that. So if you look at the different phases, the first phase, you start off by setting your goals, uh, determining the project's objectives, what you're supposed to achieve, what the problems, what problems will be solved. Uh, and then in the first pass, uh, your goal setting will focus on which user needs should be satisfied. Later passes, you'll do uh, uh, the objectives of design and innovation tools and technologies. Okay. Uh, next phase, and this is one of the distinguishing factors in Spiral, really, is its focus on risk management. It's also one of its uh, benefits and disadvantages, which we'll get to. Uh, inherently, you identify alternative courses of action for each uh, for each uh, iteration around the Spiral. You select the best alternative, analyze the risks and risk avoidance strategies, and use various methods to evaluate the alternatives. You get to an implementation, uh, sorry, the development phase. Uh, Originally, you'll, your uh, your increment would result in a, uh, an SRS or an FS or something like that, which would then uh, be expanded on after each increment until the point where you've got a well, product. And also inherent to this phase is verification that it uh, well verify that it complies with its specification. Then lastly, you evaluate your project. You see where you are after your increment. Is it worthwhile to continue on to the next spiral? Uh, do you change the approach or do you shut down the project? Right, and then the outer spirals, uh, they say that 
you should think about this of as uh, you're spiraling into a vortex and not spiraling out of control, but it will look more or less like that after you've done a few increments. More or less, not exactly that. All right, uh, advantages. So accurate requirements, it provides a framework for developers and users to progressively learn about the product at low cost. Going into spiral, you wouldn't understand exactly what all your risks and requirements are going to be, one of the benefits. It reduces risk uh, by dealing with risk in a formal manner. Again, it's part of the model. You consider your risks, your risk mitigation strategies, and so forth, all built into your model. Uh, early error, det error detection uh, and failure avoidance you'll pick up your failures and uh, things like your technology risk and so forth within your first few iterations and not in your last phase as with uh, Waterfall or many of the other models. Now disadvantages, uh, it's not really, again, it's difficult to schedule innovation or budget for it. It's not necessarily even possible to do a spiral development at a fixed price because you don't know, if you're doing spiral, then you wouldn't know exactly where it is that you're going to end up. Uh, mature risk recognition skills are required. It doesn't help you follow a risk-based model, but you don't have uh, very good risk uh, skills in managing risk. And management overhead, it's not the simplest or the most straightforward model, model to apply. All right, and that's basically my short run through the different models. Uh, I'm just going to end up with my conclusion. So again, the life cycle drivers uh, as we mentioned before, for one size of model does not fit all. There is no perfect model that everyone should be applying. Really, you should understand what the life cycle drivers are. Uh, and there's a story that I, I want to tell. It's, uh, it's a bunch of blind people, and they've got an object, and they're trying to figure out what it is. The one guy says it's a rope. The other guy says, no, it's a spear. The other one says it's a wall. But really, it is an elephant. So... If you don't understand all the different models and the entire environment, it's the concept of system thinking. You need to understand everything around the system to be able to determine which one it is. And just I hope you're not the guy who thinks it's a rope. <laughs> 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 all right, and that's basically it. I think. Any questions? So when you, when, you, when you were talking about agile methodology, you said Scrum was like one, and it was a fairly old, um, I think, was it 1980s or something like that? What are the other methodologies that are that are um, Yeah, there is quite a few, actually. Agile still, uh, the Agile model incorporates a whole bunch of different methodologies in it. One of the later ones would be Discipline Agile Delivery, or uh, DAD, which is uh, a framework which is a very new one, a very interesting one as well. Scythe also developed a few years ago, so yes, they're adding new ones very often. Scrum is just uh, it's the most popular one for quite a few different reasons. But yeah, it existed long before I <coughs> yeah. uh, Agile again, you, you, it said two to four weeks. Yes. And what happens if your system, I mean, if you cannot... Well, well, let me say it this way. To me, it automatically tells you it's only a specific type of uh, system that you can use it in for. Um, so what if you can't deliver something valuable in four weeks? Yeah. Uh, and, and also my worry is maybe, let's say you can give something in four weeks, but if you want to do the next increment, you have to change really the architecture of what you've done. Because the, the, what you've done in four weeks is basically just a mock-up, basically, almost. Or, you know, or, or you can say it's a product, but I mean, yes. to, be, to, to make it the complete system, you need 
more architectural type of stuff to be in the system. True, yeah. So Agile and Scrum specifically, there is a lot written about Scrum. It's actually a very complicated thing if you get down to it. There's very intricate benefits to it. It's the whole, uh, the whole empowerment thing. It's about building teams that are self-managing, that's highly efficient and so forth. And for the team to be able to do that, it is really the evolutionary approach. So they work, they improve, they constantly get better to the point where they are very high performing, where they can deliver any type of uh, product. And that is that is the underlying thing which Agile tries to get to, uh, or Scrum specifically. So the point is to build teams like that. You are able to do that. If you have a product which it's not possible, uh, which is not possible to deliver a viable product in four weeks, or if it's not possible to actually deliver market value uh, things within a four week period then you could argue that you really shouldn't be using Agile, that your, your product that you're trying to build is too complex and then you should revisit the lifecycle drivers which made you base your decision on that originally. Uh, either that or it could also be that your team maybe is not yet at the point where they are able to, uh, able to deliver that in that period of time. Um, with, with regards to your question on the architecture, that is also a very, very interesting point. Uh, also a very complicated one. Many people would argue that it's not really possible to build a perfect architecture going in. You've got software architects who take a pattern or take something which they've worked on in the past. Very often they'll take a document, they'll copy it, they'll say, right, I know this pattern. We're going to follow this architectural approach. It will solve all, all, all our problems. Whether or not that's the case might be less, more debatable uh, than they actually think it is. In Agile Scrum, your architecture evolves with your product. So it's not, again, you do a sprint zero, so you don't just don't jump blindly in and say, well, we need a login screen. Just use this, put the login screen there. You do have some envisioning of what your product is going to be, and you plan your architecture uh, going into it. But your architecture can change. The question is then, let's say you were uh, six months into a waterfall development. Is there any guarantee that in that same scenario, your architecture that you envisioned six months before and is still going to fit your, uh, your product in? It might also change, unfortunately. So that would be the argument. Okay, if, if you can take that analogy of evolution, um, yes. you know, they say the, 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 the human eye is, is a very inefficient way of design compared to some of the other animals because the, the wiring sits on the, the, oh, yes, on the side. Yeah. And the reason was because it was evolutionary and not uh, you know, pre-planned, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, if you had all the information beforehand, you would obviously have designed it differently. But the thing about incrementally is that you sort of cross the bridge when you get there and you sure. don't you don't think really in very far into the future yes by not thinking too far in the future aren't you maybe building in too much risk as well into the uh, system possibly but your analogy of the human eye is a good one if you consider the humans as a species the eye didn't hold them back all that much in the end <laughs> i guess so but you know yeah, yeah. so if uh if your architecture is so difficult that you cannot envision it within a sprint, let's say a two to four week period, you cannot, uh, your development team, and remember your expertise sits within your development team. They are the ones that understands the product. They are the ones that is going to build it. They have all the technical capabilities, if it's a high performing good team, obviously. They should be in a position where they can, after a four week period, say, based on the information that we have now, this is going to be the architectural approach that we're going to follow. And as far as we know, this should fit the circumstances. If it turns out that you didn't understand your requirements uh, to such an extent that your architecture doesn't fit in the end, then you could again argue that you would have run into the same types of problems with uh, other models. 
I wanted to comment on that. Firstly, I saw an article the other day which actually new research has shown that the design of the eye is actually working better and there's a specific reason for it. So these things tend to change as well as people get more understanding. And I think the whole thing with, um, with your evolutionary or with your iterative models is that you have an architecture which adapts over time, as Anna has been saying, and you're not going for a for a, a permanent answer in your first, second or third sprint, you're actually getting a course and you're reviewing it and you're adapting it. So it's not about getting it right the first time, it's about getting the right course and then eventually getting to the best answer. Yeah, I, I've seen in practice, I've seen, a, a um, so keep in mind as well, this is uh, a lot of this is software orientated, although I've seen a hardware team which did hardware development in one month sprints. But um, it wasn't a very happy team. Um, so, and then there's other things, as Hannah said, which is unsuitable if you're building a bridge or something like that. You know, you want to put your pylons in in the right place. You don't want to move those around. You know, after you've started. So, you need to have the right methodology for the right project. Mm. You consider your lifecycle drivers again and basing mm. your decision on agile in the first place. If your product really doesn't fit, it, then it's possible that you've missed one of your drivers. Is it possible that you can combine it in a way that you sort of do in the beginning? You do, if it's a very big system, you do uh, more architectural work, but that is more sequential. And then when, when you get to a more the detailed development uh, coding that you uh, aspects that, that you can do uh, more agile, because the architecture is the high level architecture is yes. fixed, but it's now just the, the individual applications and components that are now implemented. It would depend on who you ask. If you ask the Agile community, then they will say that is Scrum but, and you shouldn't be doing it. It's Scrum but other stuff. Um, and again, if you're in a position where your architecture is of such nature that Agile can't design it or can't develop it, then you can kind of draw into question whether you should be using Agile at all. Remember, consider that with Spiral development, for instance. In that situation, you could very easily apply Spiral, where you do your development with uh, following an Agile or Scrum approach, if let's say your team is most familiar with that, but you do your analysis and you're planning everything else with whichever uh, model fits best there, such as sequential, that you can use that to derive your requirements. So you could apply Spiral in that case. But pure Agile, they'll probably say no. <laughs> So if you're talking about product, I mean, I think the confusion is possible when you think of product, you think of delivering this to an end user, to a yes. paying client, but that you might be delivering it to another part of, you might be delivering, you're talking about the hardware guides, you might be delivering something to the, the system integrated to allow you to test the entire system with a limited functionality. Right. Yeah. So that mm -hmm. might be where the, so you take a, I mean, your, your bridge is a good example, you might be providing a single entry for the guys with yes. the wheelbarrows and the next yeah. one might be a little bit more or mm. if it's software it might just be a simple data link or something like that. Yes. Yeah. I think but without all the other functionality on top of it like the software might just be the you know a bit of line a complete functionality end to end that can be used as a product right <clears throat> but the product might not be going to the person who's going to put in the aircraft yes absolutely so it's about adding value to business and adding value as quickly as possible so in that case if your engineering team can derive value from getting a release within two weeks so that already answers whatever they're working on well so. how often um, does the choice of model that you use is it influenced by the personality of the team that you have <laughs> rather than the nature of your problem? 
Obviously, you, it's a difference between the environment you're working. I mean, a bridge versus, let's say, military hardware versus yes. software. If we just think software for now to keep it simple, yes. how often does the personalities of the client and the development team influence the method followed rather than the nature of the problem? Well, it really, to be honest, it should actually influence the method that's followed. Let's say, for instance, you've got a customer who's for whatever reason, you can just see that this guy isn't going to come to my office every two weeks for two hours to, to, to sit in the demo and to run through all the requirements and figure out what the product are, uh, is then already you know that probably if you do Scrum, not, the customer is not going to come. I'm not going to get a very good result. So yes, it does influence it, not only the personalities, but also the capabilities of the team. Uh, adding more or less mature uh, teams or organizations may well influence the types of, types of models that would be successful in that environment. Uh, but yes, it's very strong personalities in organizations are typically a symptom of uh, low CMMI type organizations or with relatively immature processes. Hopefully, and unfortunately, you always get strong personalities everywhere. It will be interesting to see how these models map to personality types yes. on one domain and the other way how the models map onto problem types. Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. It scares the hell out of traditional project managers. It scares the hell out of project, a traditional project manager. And if you're still saying, but we're going to go back and we're not going to follow this waterfall or something like that. Not to go on a gang chart, you can have a couple of you can have iterations and lots of thin gang charts rather than one big one. Well, it's one of the, well, not, not, you may call it a problem or a massive benefit depending on who you are, but if you ask what the project manager's role is in Scrum, there is no project manager role in Scrum. <laughs> It's not inherently part of the methodology. Uh, they, they play various roles, Scrum Master, the responsibilities are broken down in different ways, but yes. Do you find that in sort of bigger system developments you get a number of different models in play at the same time? Absolutely, so yes. In hierarchy you might have a, it a waterfall for the overall system yeah. that certain mm -hmm. elements in that system might follow that type of approach. Well, yes, definitely. So typically, your overall uh, your overall strategy and your overall model is defined in your uh, software product lifecycle, which is uh, consists of multiple, or one or multiple, depending on your organization, software development lifecycles. Every one of those SDLCs might follow a different model. Again, whichever one fits that circumstance is the best. You might develop your uh, front end in a Kanban fashion, your back end in a uh, spiral fashion, and so forth. Whichever one works. I wonder, right, I wonder my position, how do you end up, could you end up, could you start off heading in a, say one of the, the more advanced models using agile model or something, and end up in a, maybe inside one of the iterations in a sort of code and fix um, uh, cycle. It feels like all, all uh, projects at some point end up go through that kind of migration stage. Oh, yeah. Maybe just to dig yourself out of that, that particular cycle. I don't know when you in that position. But it's almost code and fix disguised as agile. But if code and fix hiding in each in each loop, how do you know when you've reached that stage and you need to abandon that cycle and start again? So let's say you are in a situation where you apply agile and really this happens very, very often. We've got teams that's not very mature. They start developing software, they're running Scrum, it's all awesome, they love it, they enjoy it, but are they really building high quality? Uh, are they in a code and fix environment? 
you will probably run into problems. But the whole premise is that the team evolves with the process. Again, Agile Scrum is based around the team evolving. After every single sprint, they go back. They do a big revision of everything that happened that went wrong in that sprint. They uh, drive it, they apply it in the next sprint, and after each sprint, they get better. Typically, by the third or fourth sprint, you'll uh, see that they're starting to look for solutions. So there's the uh, there's an old theory which is the X versus Y type personality. X, oh, sorry, management styles. X don't give me any work. I don't want to get anything more. And if your management has that perspective of its workers then it's going to try to micromanage them and force them because the management's perspective is that the workers doesn't actually want to do everything. Compared to that, you've got the why one, which is, yes, please give me more work. I would love to do this. Just give me the tools to be able to do it effectively. Agile is very much the second one. So it's about empowering teams. You start out with a junior team doing code and fix. Uh, really starting with development, everyone starts at code and fix and then they start running into the projects and they mature. They learn why it is that it's not working and how to improve it. So you might be doing that for three or four sprints, or two or three sprints or whatever, but within a very short period, if you're applying Scrum correctly, then you should see this, uh, the team themselves start, uh, starting to resolve those problems. Just a comment, I think one, the, the, the feeling is that Agile is, is um, casual, it, is not, it doesn't follow process, it's, it's actually it's, it's managed by a team, but it's very formal. You have formal test cases. You, you, it's, it's a, has a very, people take, there's a responsibility people take on task. The responsibility gets handed over to the test team with your test um, procedures or whatever, written up formally. Not formally, maybe, but, but it's, a, there's a very strict process that's followed. It's not as if it's chaos. It's not like, a, I think what maybe people are not involved in it I think it sounds like just yeah. sort of crash and burn type of, Yes. So um, it's coding, but it's not. It actually yeah. is really formal. True. There's, yeah. there's many misconceptions about Agile. Mm -hmm. The most common one is, if you do Agile, you don't need to document. Mm -hmm. it's, not, yeah. uh, it's not, actually I say with a smile, it's not true. Sometimes it is true, mm -hmm. because there's an argument to be had that your code itself, if written in a well enough way, if you're writing really brilliant code, very well commented and so forth, and again, depending on your product, mm -hmm. then that might be all the spec that you need especially if you're following a proper TDD approach and doing agile modeling and so forth. Um, but yeah, many, there's many misconceptions. And one of them is that agile scrum is a relatively strict framework. You still uh, work within that, I use the term framework. Uh, it's a methodology. It's a relatively strict methodology. There are specific artifacts. There are key items that's part of the process that kind of makes the whole thing stable, like your stand-up and so forth. It's carefully designed uh, to be successful and to empower your team. I think a lot of these things, like misconceptions, you could also say a uh, waterfall is a useless product. It's where you know people fix stuff up front, they walk to hell and gone, and then they just you know fight in court with the client because they've got a contract. But in reality, it's not like that. That's just an easy answer for somebody that doesn't want to do waterfall and doesn't want to spend the time to really understand how it works. And the same thing with agile. You know, a lot of the things, if you look at good methodology and good practice, you know. There's a lot of commonality. There's elements from Waterfall which you do in Agile. There's elements of Agile you do in Waterfall. Sometimes it's a, a certain uh, um, methodology lends itself to uh, an easier way of doing these things. But you know, people follow good practice. So I always smile when people say, well, you know, Agile is about this and this. Because normally it's just somebody that isn't interested in really knowing. You know, it's, it's one of these cults, you know, defending their, their belief. <laughs>
Yes. So, in many organizations, you'll find that your life cycle drivers change over time as your company evolves, as your products changes, uh, your needs also change, the audience changes, the way that you approach it changes. Google is a good example. They started out with a non-commercial search engine, but then they changed their product offering and so forth. Um, with regards to changing a specific model within a set development, uh, development uh, time frame or product, that would really, I assume, depend on your management abilities, how well that's done, but probably it's not the ideal. Uh, it is possible, but it's definitely not the ideal. Uh, it would be better to kind of develop your product up to a point where you can either uh, stop development and re and formally change it over to another one. Yeah. It, it, again, it depends on your management style. I would I would think it's not. It's also not a very uncommon scenario to be honest. Very often you get a manager who runs a specific development model, a dev manager or whatever, and then he uh, gets the boot or leaves, and another one comes in and says, "Agile, you're doing agile. Agile is crap. Now we're going to change over to this." And then he does that, it also doesn't work, and then he leaves again, and so forth. So it's not that it doesn't happen. It's just, it's not a good place to be in generally. If you have to start jumping within a product development, uh, the specific product development lifecycle within model, between different models, not the ideal. Related to that topic is, how much time do organizations spend on building the culture within the group and growing it? And how do they distinguish between artifacts tools and the method, because often people get a tool and suddenly the method is very much dictated by what the tool can do or not do in a moment, yeah. there comes a change, everything changes again, and uh, and often I have a model that jumps to my mind, my home worker that comes and clean my home, she's got a certain method that she loves to do, she first works, starts in the kitchen, because that's what she enjoys doing, but actually, in my mind, it's better working from the back and cleaning everything out the front. So how do you distinguish between what people like doing and what good culture is to do for the particular problem? Yeah, so if you don't understand, firstly, if you don't understand the different models going in, there's no way that you're going to be choosing the correct one. If you, many people, many organizations doesn't even understand the model that they're trying to implement, or specifically many less successful organizations doesn't understand the model that they're trying to implement. Uh, they don't understand the life cycle drivers, they don't understand exactly what it is that you, you, they're trying to do. And it's very typical in those organizations that you get these magic projects, the products. We need to buy this product. It's going to revolutionize the way that we develop, how we implement our software, how we test. And it's usually very expensive and it usually has very little value. Many of those organizations have a whole shelf full of those types of products because, again, they're not resolving the underlying issues. Uh, so they're not changing their culture. They're not focusing on the correct way. Systems engineering, you guys know this very well. Uh, so yes, very much a real problem. Okay, last, last question. Um, coming back to poor waterfall, you said in the beginning that um, uh, it's, it applies to simple systems. Am I right in saying simple doesn't necessarily mean small? No. You can have a simple no, no. system, but it's, it's fairly big in scope. Yes. So by simple, I simply mean that there is little technology risk and that the requirements are 
uh, relatively easy to understand. Relatively easy to understand. In a complicated system, the requirements are inherently understandable, but they are not necessarily understood. Uh, so it's the different level. Simple is relatively easy to understand. You can look at it and say, all right, this is going to be the components, this is going to be the plan. Complicated is, uh, it's more difficult. It is possible to understand it, but it is going to be much more effort. And then uh, as you move along, you get to com complex, which is, it's impossible to understand. It is inherent, it, you can predict it, but you can never understand it. Like, uh, well, like Nigeria's traffic is always a good example. Impossible to understand. <laughs> okay, then, and, and then also what you mentioned there was, um, uh, I'm right in saying that uh, if it is a project like that or a system like that, uh, all things else being equal, would Waterfall be the most uh, cost-effective way of doing it? Given the conditions of Waterfall, and these are part of the Waterfall methodology actually, Waterfall said Waterfall works given these preconditions. In those preconditions, if they all are met, then yes, by all means, Waterfall may well be the cheapest way to deliver that product. But again, if you don't understand the lifecycle drivers, the requirements, things like that, then that is going to break. It still has risk. It is not going to be perfect. But the point is really that waterfall isn't, uh, it shouldn't be a swear word. People should see where it does fit. And it does have its little place. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. 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 Thank you very